0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. My listeners,
1: this is Datacast, where I long-form in conversation with our practitioners, cross-researchers to unpack the narrative journeys in the career. My guest today is Itai Bar Sinai, who has over 10 years' of experience working at. Places like Google and AI for a startup. With big data, currently he is the chief officer and co founder of Mona Labs, a leading AI monitoring intelligent company. Itai has a unique view of the AI industry. By working closely with data science and machine teams, applying dozens of solutions in over 10 industries, he encounters a wide variety of business use cases, architectural structures and cultures, and technologies used in today's AI world. To so Itai. It's just my pleasure to uh, welcome you to the show.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here, James.
1: Fabulous. I want to start our conversation a little bit going back all the way to your education, right? By way of introduction, I believe that you are from Israel and then you went to a college in Jerusalem to study math and computer science. Can you share briefly about your upbringing as well as your?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm a geek from way earlier on than a university, right? Both my parents are computer programmers and they were like the first, they were in the first year in, in Israel where there was even like such a degree to like computer science degree. And when I was six years old, my dad brought in and bought like a, our first PC to our family house and like the first thing he taught me was how to program in Q basic So like my first English was actually a programming language. And as time went, I, I went to all those geeky programming summer camps and became an instructor in one of those. And we, studying computer science was just like a natural path for me. I actually started by studying computer science and cognitive sciences. And I, I know I just after one semester, it just became very apparent to me that math is, is like a, a bigger passion for me. So I switched to computer science and math. So that's where I did my bachelor, right, In the Hebrew University of Jerusalem.
1: I see. Do you recall any favorite classes that you take in university?
2: Oh, wow. That's a good question. So you know, mo- most of my favorite classes are, I think like are around algebra, right? So I, I, I love group theory. I love topology. Th- those are all around math. I think if I would have continued. With academic studies, it, it would have been around math for sure, and, and around like the more abstract stuff, like algebra, topology, and stuff like that.
1: I see. So, so you have a more interest in like the theoretical side of things than like the progressive yeah, side I, of things.
2: Yeah, it it, it it changes, right? Like when I do business, right? When I work, I actually really just I, the just like the, the actual meat of things what we like to say in in, in we call the tachles, the essence of things. And I don't want to talk about like the theoretical things almost at all, but when studying, I think the philosophy behind things was very interesting to me.
1: After finishing college, you worked for about three years as a sub-engineer at Google, where initially you were... Just engineer, but then you later become a tech lead for the Google Trends team, building products for consumers and journalists alike. What were some of the major projects that you contributed to during your time there?
2: Yeah. So so I actually started as an intern um, still during university and then became a full-time employee and um, spent the whole like four years in total in the Google Trends team. Google Trends... If anyone isn't familiar, then I highly recommend, definitely people who are working with data, you should definitely check it out. It's like an analytics um, product on top of Google search data and other Google data, you can see like what people are searching for and what the world is thinking about according to Google's data. It's like the deck of Google's data, which is a super interesting thing to have, a tool to have. And, And another cool thing about it is that the Google Trends team within Google was always acted like a startup within Google. So I had a really great, like really great opportunity to work on all sorts of areas where I had the experience doing completely like front end client side, JavaScript, HTML stuff, all the way backwards to like big data pipelines and machine learning um, operationalization within Google, which is by the way, done very interestingly in a different way at Google and specifically on trends like So so there were many different projects. One of them was really interesting. I had the opportunity to integrate trends data into Google News data and actually created this kind of um, feedback feature for journalists, showing them what interest, how much interest is there in the topics that they are writing on in, in the various articles, compared to how many articles are already written on that specific topic, a way for them to balance what they're running for to according to like how much is already written about it and how much the the public is still interested. It's a really cool thing working for such a big company on such a project because I had the chance, for example, to visit when I was working, like after the project went out and and journalists started using it, I had the, um, the opportunity to visit, for example, the CNN newsroom in New York and actually see my, like my product, like the thing that I built on the big screen in the middle of the newsroom, which is something that when building a startup, it takes a long time until you get to such a place. So that was a really great experience.
1: Absolutely. And just to follow up on that, Paul, you mentioned about building products that impact a like, very large audience, like journalists and consumers like that. What are some of the lessons you learned about building products that impact people? What are some of the like, things that you, as an engineer, you have to take into account when building the engineering architecture of that.
2: Something about Google that I think gives someone like me, an engineer that starts working there, a really interesting experience over there that's very different in Google and, let's say, when compared to earlier stage companies, is that whatever you you push out has to go through this very um, strong checklist You have to check the box on many different things and make sure that everything's fine before it's out. And then if something goes wrong later on, then you have to already have a plan on what to do about it. And this was actually something that inspired a lot of what we're doing now in Mona, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, but like this notion that when, when you build something new, you have to, like, it's your responsibility to create this, let's say, cookbook, or, 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 or if anything goes wrong, like what can go wrong? And you to think, of, okay, what can go wrong with what I'm doing here, right? Because it will affect so many people, so many users, will affect so much of the business, right? So, so what will go wrong? What might go wrong? And when it does go wrong, okay, what needs to be done very quickly to resolve the issue? And you need to really map out all those scenarios. And this is something, for example, that today still isn't really happening, um, like this kind of thinking isn't really happening today in the AI world, but I'm sure we'll dive much, yeah. much more deeply into this.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for beating that bridge between Google. Well, te- right? A little teaser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just one final note about your time at Google. So you mentioned in your previous answer that you work on a variety of teams, right? Ranging from...
2: The course functions, these different functions.
1: Yeah, different functions within Google. I, I suppose yeah, initially you focused more on, on just high level engineering it, then the getting that interest in AI and machine learning, right? How, how did you become fascinated by AI and ML and decided to go deeper into that domain?
2: So first of all, yeah, you, you're, you're more or less correct. Right? So I started out, I did mainly things that are front-end, front full stack. Um, it's usually uh, things that are usually more simple, right? Not always, and gradually became more and more oriented towards the backends and big data and, and then also operation, o- operationalizing machine learning because like, within Google, there's so much already that's built. There are so many different models that are already built and you can think, okay, where do I use those? Then how do I use those? And I, how, how can I take those and make them relevant to the product that I'm building now? And, and it, it was like what fascinated me is really that it seemed like magic, right? You basically, you have this need and you have. You don't have a lot of idea for how you can tackle this, but then, okay, there's this like this model. Obviously, it's not magic, right? But I had to learn that after that. So this magical essence of it, right, it made it very appealing to me to start and go researching this much more deeply later in my career and, and within Google.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that context a little bit. We work at Google until 2016. and. After that, I believe you spent some time working as an AI consultant. So can we really touch on this period of your career?
2: Yeah, sure. So, so after Google, I had a couple of side hustles. We can touch on those as well if you want. But, but one of the things that were really clear to me, like also when working at Google, I loved working at Google and I, I, only, I left because I felt, okay, I want to build stuff that are my own. Like one of the things I learned over there is I really care about, I, want, I really want to build stuff that are mine from scratch. And whenever I got the opportunity to build such a project within Google, this always felt the best to me. And I knew that I'm going, that I need to do like something with AI. So I knew that there are a couple of gaps in my knowledge, right? in in my experience that I need to fill out, right? First of all, I want to work as a data scientist. And I, and I want to, so I want to get much deeper into AI from the more of the research or data science side. And I also want to um, understand better how things work in earlier stage startups because, okay, Google experience from Google, that's great, but it's very different than what you'll actually encounter if you build your own thing. So I did that, right? So I, I did a couple of, of jobs like this. One of them, for example, was a computer vision uh, model that I had to build from scratch, a couple of models. To um, basically understand what's going on on a driver's dashboard or a smart fueling app, so that's really interesting. To fun having a couple of miles to find where is the fuel written and what's written over there, and how much mileage the car has and, and stuff like that. It's really interesting. I also did some work as a consultant in a small Israeli AI centric VC which allowed me less of actually building models on my own, but actually meeting all the different early stage AI companies in Israel and understanding how the business side of things work in those areas, which was also very helpful given what I'm doing today.
1: Yeah. It's, it sounds like you deliberately leave Google to pursue this entrepreneurial vision and you, you're trying to do so by working as, as a consultant and working at, at that VC, just to cut kind of time into the Israeli startup ecosystem that focus on AI, right? And that, that sort of like allows you to start build a network of people who can who can meet with, you know, so a, a, and knowledge,
2: network of people, and, and definitely and, and knowledge and experience that you need to actually uh, actually start something. Yeah,
1: Actually, And we'll, we'll touch on the ecosystem of AI in Israel later on in the chat. But you did mention that you have a few side hustles during this period. And just a fun fact that I found out while doing research on your profile, you are actually a co-owner of Leah's Kitchen, which is a 100% vegan restaurant in Berlin. Can you share a bit about this side hustle?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so after leaving Google, I had a couple of side hustles. I, I built a couple of consumer products as well, um, you, um, that's like small traveling app and, and stuff like that, which had mild success. But obviously those kinds of things are very hard to make money from. And it wasn't always about that. Uh, I also had this dream with a couple of friends of mine. It, it was this kind of fantasy for a couple of years. We had a kind of a gang of friends who met every week to have, I was vegan for many years and my friends as well. And we had this big dinner. One of, the, one of my friends was a really great cook and he made this dinner for our friends, like every week, and we always talked about, okay, we're, you're gonna finish. He was studying at the time, so okay, you're gonna finish studying. We'll, we'll open the, the restaurant, and we always we, we had this dream of moving to Berlin as well. Um, this is uh, something that's pretty common. I know for some reason, with people growing up in Tel Aviv, uh, Berlin is like a place where people want to go. And I had some experience in Germany with a foreign exchange student program over there, so I spent already like six months over there, and I I, I really liked up. You know, wanted to go back. So he actually finished studying this friend and he moved to Berlin. And then a year after he moved to Berlin, he called me and said, you know, I I moved here, we always said, we're going to open this restaurant. So what's up? Like I did my part. Why aren't you here? So I had to fly over there and I had to do it. We flew out over there. To be completely honest, this, it was very much a side hustle for me. It was very much like him and another friend of ours, they're the ones who actually built everything Yeah, I was more of a silent partner. I helped out with the ramping up things. I spent like a year in Berlin, helping with this while working on other projects of mine. But yeah, it, it was a very special experience. The, the, the restaurant, by the way, is still up and running. I'm not a part anymore, but the restaurant is still up and running and I think it's pretty successful. I highly recommend to check it out anyone that's traveling to Berlin or living there.
1: Thanks for things showing interesting that you got a chance to partake on in that initiative. And yeah, and I, 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 can
2: all, I can also recommend that don't start a restaurant. It's, it's like the hardest thing ever. Yeah. It's uh, hard, harder even than starting a startup for really. It's yeah. a very, very hard thing to do.
1: I see. Circling back into our, our main topic of a chat about AI. Since September 2018, you have been a co-founder and chief product officer of Mono Labs. Whom's mission is to make AI and sharing impactful, effective, reliable, and safe for fast pro teams and businesses. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company?
2: Sure. So Nemo, who is was my boss back at Google, basically, he was the global engineering lead of Google Trends. He and I left Google around the same time and we stayed in touch, we are friends, but we met socially like a couple of years later, around April of 2018, I think we met and we realized we we're both looking for the next big thing, right? I was working as a consultant and he was actually like a VP engineering at a much later stage, AI startup as well. And he called up his, the person was his roommate and best friend in uni. So they were friends for 14 years already. So 18 years now. and. And we grouped together and we we all knew that we're looking for something big. We're looking for something to do uh, with AI. And we started some ideation and Nemo um, brought in this idea of, uh, of a monitoring platform because we all had like experience with productionizing AI and it all resonated with with us, a lot, but he said in his previous company, it was very hard for him to sleep well at night because we could really trust. Their AI system. He said, like anything can go wrong. Things go wrong pretty often in some sense. And it's impossible um, to know wh- when it's going to happen and when and even when it does happen, it, it, could, it could happen for a while before you even notice it. And he tried to solve this in-house. And that was very difficult to do as well as very challenging. And he got some um, suboptimal results from that. So we did a couple like some more market research. Like we we had a couple of ideas besides that, but we did uh, some more market research on this subject and, and found some design partners and started working on this before like setting, okay, this is the right thing. It was, pre- it, it became pretty obvious to us that this is, this is going to be a big thing. AI is become ubiquitous and let's say the infrastructure didn't evolve as fast as the research, as the AI use cases, it's pretty clear that there's lack of infrastructure over there and monitoring is a big part of it.
1: Can you talk more about fighting the co again? Like how, how did you and the, the co decide that you're a good fit to work together?
2: That we're a good fit to work together as founders?
1: Yeah. So, so between
2: Nemo and myself, that was, it wasn't a question we worked together for four years already at Google and we loved each other and we knew that we love working together and we have the same kind of style and culture and we're looking for similar things. And then between him and Yotam, our CEO and co-founder, who was his co-drewmate, right? They were also very aware of how they like each other and have the same culture and, and those kind of things being pretty transitive. <laughs> it meant that I like Yotam as well. And we have the same kind of culture and the same kind of things that we're looking for. But although obviously we spent a couple of months together, both doing ideation and, and working on some things. And, and Yotam, he lives in the U.S. He's our, is the guy who leads our go-to-market team in, in the U.S. And, and he, he came to Israel and, and we did this kind of uh, like a workshop, right? Like a full week workshop where we built like different scenarios of what could happen with with the startups and what kind of like you know, t- types of, cen- of scenarios of th- things that can happen in, in a startup and and, see, and and try to see if we're just thinking about the same things over there. Are we looking for the same kind of results in each kind of scenarios? And are, are there going to be, is there going to be a little friction over there? Do our interests align on the same kind of thing And as yeah, we, we didn't see obviously nothing. I think it's ever perfect, but we, we didn't see anything to major. And it was pretty clear to us. And to be honest, like today, uh, is four years into this, uh, time and I are already like the, the best friends and, and uh, we, we're better friends than any of us is friends with Nemo anymore, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's just a joke. We're,
1: we're
2: all really good friends. now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for providing the context. Stepping back a bit into the actual uh, problem, this problem of monitoring and I realize you're framing on uh, how the um, infrastructure doesn't keep up to date with the research. And that's how you and the co founders are motivated to view this monitoring infrastructure for machine learning products to be put in the real world. Right? You are the chief product officer. So I want to ha- ask a few questions about the actual product uh, that it has been built. So let's uh, so that's, that's, ask these capabilities that are back into the monitoring platform. You actually have been a lot about some of these features on the website Mona, everything ranging from 1st all data collection and actionable insights to even model version benchmark and near real-time monitoring, which mind explaining how the platform architecture is designed at a high level.
2: Sure, I think a basic architectural r- overview of Mona. Mona has four four main layers, right? To it, the first layer is the data layer, right? Because Mona is like an, maybe I'll start with that. Mona is an end-to-end monitoring platform, right? It's supposed to provide to you the full solution, right? So there is, when you install Mona and when you use it, there is some work to do in order for Mona to be configured and tailored to your specific use case, but it is a platform that should cover everything that's relevant for the whole monitoring lifecycle. So to do that, it utilizes four main layers. The first layer is a data layer. The layer's job is to allow you very easily to collect relevant data from wherever it resides, right? And this could be model inputs and outputs, but also business metadata and business feedback and menu labeling and training data and technical metadata and stuff like that. Collect them all to one place and create from them uh, what we call a monitoring data set, right? Um, that that has all the metrics and and fields that you want to track, right? Your monitoring schema, basically. You can define a monitoring schema. Once you have a mon- such a monitoring dataset, that's the end of layer one. Um, layer two is a visualization layer. Basically everything you can think of, um, that uh, allows you analytical, um, um, exploratory capabilities on top of this monitoring dataset or, or monitoring datasets that you build on, that Mona built for you. So anything from dashboarding, report creation, exploration, hypothesis testing, root cause analysis, troubleshooting, things like that. We have investigative tools within Mona to do all those things. Both as a dashboard and via um, programmatic API. Then comes a third layer, which I think is the perhaps the most important and the most differentiated layer that we have, which is known as intelligence layer. The intelligence layer's job is to find for you exactly where your system underperforms or has some kind of drifting um, behavior or some sudden change, some behavior that you didn't expect. And show you exactly where this happens as early as possible with a full context on what's happening so that you can resolve the issue as quickly as possible. And then a fourth layer is what we call the operational layer. It connects back to to your workflows. Make sure that the right person gets alerted in the right time about the right thing, right? So it connects to your Slack or PagerDuty or Microsoft Teams or emails. it allows you to track different issues over time and resolve them and assign to different people and connect to your ticketing system like JIRA or Monday
1: or however you um,
2: you handle your work. Um, so that's more or less like the the overview of the architecture.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that just to recover the data visualization, intelligence, and operation. Exactly. And I guess like throughout to the years that you've been with Mona, the team has been building this platform layers by layers, right? It doesn't always been in, in conversation with customers to be able to pinpoint this design.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We started early on, like the first thing we did before we built any architecture or anything, is was just like find design partners. And those were, by design, we found late stage startups that are AI-centric we realized very early on that those are the thought leaders right so for example gong io is one of our customers and is perhaps like they have one of the most advanced ai teams available and those are the teams that we thought okay they how they behave today that's where the future is going that's where the big corporations are going to go right the big companies are going to behave like them they're they're paving the road for everyone else and we said okay It's more important for us then to get like initially the big deals, to get those companies that we think understand the problems the the best. So we started by just like finding a couple of those that shared our vision uh, regarding like this pain and this need, and just started working with them, researching them uh, and understanding, okay, why is this painful? How does this work? If I provide you something like this, what would you do with this? With it, just understanding gradually. Because we invented something here from scratch, right? There was no company with this line item in their PL, right? There was no company that already paid for monitoring for the they're directed specifically for their AI. And those companies tried to build something in-house and got suboptimal results. And we could learn from their pains. And and build like this the best way. So that's exactly
1: what we need. Yeah, and I think that part about the intelligence layer being one of the most differentiated part of your solution compared to the other is very important and I want to dig deeper onto it, the way you and your team are things about intelligently monitoring the, the data. Right, a few years ago, you were written a very comprehensive and definitive guide to AI monitoring. We started back, I believe, in 2020. So how has your understanding of the different key steps of a comprehensive marketing strategy evolved since then?
2: Yeah. So I think like the best thing to start is to ask, what do you even mean when you say monitoring, right? Because to me, it's still very hard to believe how different of a view different people have about this, uh, when asked this question, right? Uh, many people just say, hey, I, "I want a dashboard where I can look and and see like how things are, are working, how my features distribute, etc." You know, and and other people tell you things like, "I need to troubleshoot an issue when someone comes to me." And basically, if you take the state of affairs today in the industry, usually you have if you have AI in production, it's in production, it's not monitored in any decent way. And what happens is the first person to notice that something's wrong is the business stakeholder, right? There is actually like, the, like either your customer or your internal customer within the company, they call you up and they say, and they tell you, Hey, why is this giving me this result? It's not true at all. It's not giving me the value I'm looking for. And then you are in this... So, so we like to say that kind of everyone has monitoring. It's called monitoring by customer complaints, right? And, and, and then when you get this complaint. Now it's time for you to start troubleshooting and, and, and that's very uh, hard to do now. And now you're firefighting because business is already suffering. And I think one key differentiation of monism, like many people, like this story is known, what I said right now, but many people say, okay, so what I need from monitoring is that when I get this phone call, I can very easily and quickly understand what's going on and resolve the issue. But I think that's a misconception of of what monitoring is, right? Monitor the, the overarching goal of monitoring should be to detect and resolve issues before they hurt your business KPIs, right? Make sure that you are aware of them and that you resolve them before the business stakeholders give you gives you the business. So break the cycle of monitoring by customer complaints. So they basically become from reactive becoming proactive. And and this is something that's still not very well understood as as I see in the industry. So really this is why we invested so much in an intelligence layer, right? That allows you to to find out about issues very early on, right? Before they affect your entire data set, right? The, the The entire distribution of your data. or or they affect your your business KPIs. And and to do that, the the kind of steps you need to take is really very similar to how we built our architecture, right? You must make sure, A, that you can collect all the data um, from wherever it resides. And it's not just model telemetry. It's not just model inputs and outputs, right? There's a lot of relevant data outside of the model scope that you need to collect. You need to make sure that you have all the, the tools to easily Explore this data and understand if you have an open question you want to ask, you need to get it, you need to be able to get an answer as quickly as possible on top of this data. And you have to have a proactive, automatic mechanism that will detect issues very early on and alert you on them. And obviously it needs to be connected to your workflow and actually you need to do something about it, right? You need to be, uh, to have the culture and, and be able to work on top of things. So that's really, I think like the key steps. In monitoring AI, obviously they're abstract and still uh, zoomed
1: out. Yeah, the thing I really like that part about how you said being proactive and monitoring these issues before customer complain, so like really being able to not just do it ad hoc, but have a strategy to do it. And it sounds like that Mona's design was really like fit squarely into this different step of that workflow. Zooming in even more on like how your customer can actually utilize that, that intelligent monitoring solution. You actually written before that the most important criteria to perform successful monitoring is, is to focus on granular tracking and avoiding noise, right? So why are these practices integral to monitoring strategy?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's a great question. It's exactly um, like the right segue to the intelligent. What I spoke about our intelligence layer uh, and how it's supposed to alert you proactively, but how, how does it do that? So, so let me try and tell the story of, of, uh, granular monitoring by an example. imagine you have, um, a fraud detection model, right? This fraud detection model runs on top of the bank transactions and, tr- and decides whether or not, or predicts whether or not the transaction is fraudulent or not. And now, to do that. It it utilizes features that are derived from different data sources. Some of those features are derived from data that is um, saved on cookies on the customer's browser, on on the end user's browser, right? The the, the person actually using the bank to do a transaction, the the bank website to do a transaction. Now let's imagine that Google decides to release a new Chrome version and in this new Chrome version, It's in beta today, right? This new version, this beta version, they changed the policies for how cookies can be read or the API for how cookies can be read or saved, right? So now some of the features that you have that rely on cookie data, they're just broken. And if you're lucky, you have some pipeline breaking somewhere and some alerts going up, but that's not always the case at all. Sometimes you're just going to get like numbers that are incorrect over there, there's like the not numbers that you were planning on getting, or you're just going to get nulls. And when you when this Chrome version is just released into beta, maybe the traffic that you're getting from it, it's like 0.01% of your data. 0.1% of, of your traffic is coming from this. So if you just track your features across the entire data set, across your entire traffic, you're not going to notice anything, right? It's 0.1% somewhere changed, and, and you don't know maybe that this new Chrome version is coming out. You don't know that anything like this is happening. It's just happening under the radar for you. It's a very small segment, very specific segment of, of the traffic that is suffering and suffering a lot. However, if you're not, if you don't do anything in two or three months, this will be 10 or 15% of your traffic, right? Because Chrome, like you said, grows very significantly, very quickly, and obviously then you're going, your business is going to suffer, and you're going to get this monitoring by customer complaints, right? And even if you do track your feature overall, then maybe then you'll know about it, but business is already suffering a lot, right? So you need to have some kind of mechanism to detect these kinds of things. And those things happen all the time. There's so many different examples for why this kind of change in a very specific place will happen. You need to have some kind of mechanism to automatically detect that specific segment and that is behaving very differently, like detect A, I see now there's a new um, Chrome version and for anyone who's using this Chrome version, feature A, B and C are behaving very differently than how they used to behave like on, on previous versions. And there's so many p- places where you need to look to find this. And you don't even know that there are new versions coming out, so you can't manually. There's no way to do this manually in any scalable way. So that's exactly. What we like, what we designed our intelligence layer to do, right? So, in the center of intelligence layer, there's what we call the insight generator, and its job is to find automatically, like exhaustively search all different business dimensions, like browser version, device, whatever your business dimensions are, right? It's it's highly configurable. Find the specific segments in the data where there's some anomalous behavior, like this, and alert you on that the moment that it finds, even if it's like 0.1% of your data. Obviously, highly configurable. Maybe you want to get alerted only if it's 1% or whatever, but find it even if it's not affecting your entire data set yet. And it's not in a segment that you knew that you need to look at, right? You don't define, look at this Chrome version before, right? So that's what it's nice to do. And just to close the other side of this coin is that if you do this in a naive approach, just search everywhere, you're going to get a lot of noise and this is even worse than not monitoring at all. Like alert fatigue is probably the biggest enemy of healthy monitoring there is. And the reason you're going to get a lot of noise if doing this naive, in a naive approach, is that one real anomaly in the data can manifest, can be viewed in many different directions, right? It could be that the cohort, the segment of people using this Chrome browser, it correlates with... I don't know, a specific age group or a specific device type or people with Macs, the latest version of, of, of Mac or something like that. They're, they're, that. So you might see other anomalies in those segments, but they are all derived from this root cause, this new Chrome version. Mona, before it alerts you, it will find out that this is the root cause for all those different. I know they're not really different, right? But for all those um, perceivably different anomalies, Mona will find out that Chrome is the culprit, is the key reason for all those different perceived anomalies. And we'll alert you just once. It will tell you Chrome, new version, this is the problem. Here are all the other symptoms of that same problem. So if you see a problem with Mac users, it's just because of this new version of Chrome, you shouldn't worry about Mac. So yeah. I hope this was a bit of a long uh, monologue, but I hope it's made it the uh, importance of granularity theory.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think. Uh... Just follow up on the last point, I think is very important when you mentioned, like, identify the root cause of the issues, not just like the, the symptoms, right? So you go the, back to the original. Not just to provide a band-aid solution, but the like, actual sure, painkillers. Now, I guess I've actually your answer is really talking about the ability to offer kind monitoring across different model version, right? Which I th- think based on what i read on the website is really called model version benchmarking, which is like the idea of like how do you provide like this monitoring companies but with the models in different platforms, different usage, it to that. So, so that's exactly what you just discussed. And thanks for sharing that example. And another thing that I want to quickly touch on, because we currently, in this topic about being granular is, recently there's a need for real-time monitoring, like how machines become deployed and in into production using real-time data. And I'm just curious, like, from your perspective and from Mona as a company in general, how do you provide solution for real-time monitoring?
2: So just to make sure I understand the question,
1: so Mona's
2: data layer Mm -hmm. is a real-time data layer. Ingestion is is real-time, and we actually provide our customers with a solution both for streaming processes and batch processes in parallel, right? So they have a different data logging endpoint for that one, for, for batch processes and real-time processes. And this way, whenever you have like a big batch of data that you want to track, like a whole training pipeline is running now, and you want to like batch send all this data, you don't want to block your real-time processes, right? The higher priority processes are being monitored in, in real-time. So Mona provides you with a layered priority approach of data, you can easily send like data in different endpoints and all of them will have different priorities and monads like backends will know how to treat those things in a way that's lower priority data will never kind of um, disrupt your high priority um, real time monitoring does that answer the question i want to make sure that um
1: yes so what you say is that the, it come at the, the ingestion layer the, the separation the batch and real time come at the ingestion layer and then it becomes yeah, separate
2: yeah, into. All the other layers mm-hmm. can work in real time as well, but the, like the data ingestion, I think that's the part. Okay. So we also have the insights um, generator, the insight generator. This could be very heavy lifting to find like the specific segments that are problematic and for um, more real time pains, right? Real time systems. We, uh, w- what we see our users doing with Mona is, is um, applying um, easier tests, right? So in real time, you really care, you really want to know if something really big is breaking, right? So you want to know that. But to check for the smaller segments when something like this Chrome version, it's okay, like the example of the Chrome version, even though it's a real-time system that provides fraud detection for real-time transactions, it's okay if you learn about this. Couple hours later, because it's still 0.1 percent of your traffic right now. We want to learn about this today and not a month from now. But it's okay if, if you wait a couple hours to get that granular. So the system um, is highly configurable to allow you to do, to basically tell Mona, okay, give me the highly granular stuff, but only like once today. But give me the really big stuff, 15 minutes. Like we, I think we we promised like 20 minutes, like real time to get like. Uh, big insights
1: yeah thanks for sharing the context i think that the key part is like the system is highly configurable To much yeah yeah. and that's the key
2: point in monitoring ai because there's in general like the sheer variability in use cases your batch process in real-time process sometimes you have business feedback sometimes you don't sometimes you have manual labeling sometimes you don't sometimes you have you're reliant on third-party data sources sometimes you don't and all those things require different things in how you want to monitor and the type of things you want to get alerted on. So a key kind of uh, consideration in our design of Mona was always to keep it highly flexible, right? So we started with like three or four design partners. We have like two digit number of customers today, but, but we started like even with four or five customers, we just they all had like very specific needs that we had to find like the common language, like the right abstraction layer in which they can all speak to the same platform. And we did, and we're really proud of that. So we have customers doing computer vision in batch processes, and we have customers doing e-commerce and uh, and uh, I know uh, audio um, analysis, and uh, we have government agencies, and we have the startups, and uh, all of them are using exactly the same version of our software.
1: Yeah. I think for sharing that we'll talk about some of those, you know, customer use cases a little bit later on in our chat, but we're currently talking about the flexibility and configurability of the product, right? So just one quick note on this before we talk about some of your high-level thought leadership is I, I saw that Mona did an integration with New Relic, I think last year or so, I think it's, it's just also part of the, just become more flexible towards to use more user needs use records is pretty big player in the observability and monitoring space. But how did you think about, in general, technical integration with more mature product in the space and how does that support the growth of, of MUNA?
2: Yeah. So I think the the more interesting aspect of that integration is that it shows you, like, like I think like a good discussion point about this is, like, we talked about the the, the sheer kind of variability in use cases and in techs and in needs, but there's also still a lot of variability in um, the organizational structure within different organizations on who is in charge of what. And this integration with New Relic is all about allowing organizations that have some kind of um, DevOps-oriented production-oriented function in place. And they want this function to take more and more responsibility also within the AI space. So connecting Mona to New Relic allows them to have this visibility for what's happening with their AI system, or at least like some initial visibility for the people who are in charge of what's happening currently in production, like the DevOps people over there, they'll have these dashboards with Mona information already in New Relic. And they will be able to provide like first response for things going wrong also in AI-oriented, model-oriented problems. In other cases, like, so we see some cases, some companies where this is what they want. In other cases, they're building an internal production-oriented function within the data science team, right? And build like an on-call data scientist, right? Uh, they have a weekly on-call rotation. For the data scientists, they need to be able to, because maybe like the type of issues that they think that they foresee might be like too much in the, let's call it data science wheelhouse for them to trust DevOps with addressing them, right? So it's still very different. I think there's still a big question on who's going to be in charge of what when it comes to AI in production, it's still, there are different theories about yeah, like how, how this is going to
1: evolve. Perfect. Because we could this topic of architecture and structure, I think that's served pretty well to my next question. So you gave this talk at the Danlich Summit in Berlin back in summer 2022. And in that talk, I believe you discussed the shift from data science teams from being research-oriented to product-oriented, right? So would you mind explaining more some of the issues with the traditional research-oriented mode and defining the product-oriented mode for the audience. Yeah,
2: product-oriented AI is this kind of paradigm that we're trying to really talking about a lot lately. If
1: you think about it, let's start
2: with like how things are, right? If you think about the data scientist job, traditionally speaking, it's completely research-oriented. Even today, if you search on Google for the data scientist, I don't know, or, or job, you're going to see that their job is usually defined as understanding a business problem, um, get, like collecting a data set and preparing a data set, train, test, deploy, right? Like the model is the end product of their job, right? Of, of this process. And once the model is out there in production, serving like the business, their work is done. Again, traditionally speaking, obviously, many organizations are now moving away from this, but traditionally speaking, That's data scientist's job. Like you build models and you understand that building models is is a big thing. I'm not trying to uh, diminish this at all, but the model is the end product. And this causes a lot of problems, right? It causes lack of clarity regarding who owns the model now that it's in production, which that's like the reason why we see this monitoring by customer complaints, right? No one is accountable for the model now that it's in, 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 in production. And this basically causes a lot of, there's like data scientists think that DevOps people should be in charge of some of the things. DevOps people say, okay, but we don't have the monetary tools for that. And we can't really be in charge of that. And the business stakeholders are just like frustrated about the whole thing. They're they're spending a lot of money. And AI is just being considered really high risk, like a high risk kind of investment. Because even if your research project succeeds and you get like good results in your test set, that doesn't mean that you're going to get good results in production. And even if you get good results today, tomorrow, everything can change and no one will know about it. So it's just not a good operating way. It's not, not a good investment. And like the teams that we work with are usually made up of data science leaders that understand that this kind of approach actually poses a threat to their existence, right, to their team and to their resources. Because when AI is considered to be such high risk, then, and you can't really trust it, then the moment that that you have an economic downturn or something, who would have thought, then those are the first things that you're going to use. So what we see is a shift in their thinking to become much more product-oriented. What, what when I say product-oriented, I think it means that the model stops being the end product, right? It's actually just a, when you have a built and deployed model, this is just the first um, step in an ongoing, evergreen, everlasting o- o- o process that, that, that is now live, that needs to be taken care of. It means that the test of the model stops being in the test set, right? In the lab. It, the, test, the real test of the model is how it functions with regards to the actual business that it's trying to serve, the business KPIs, and it means that you shift your goals and you strive, again, like we said before, you strive to resolve, attend and resolve issues before they hurt business so that the business stakeholders will have trust in this. So this is the paradigm that we have defined and are really trying to push and are working with our customers. This is when we do a project with a new customer, it's not just about, okay, let's set up monitoring. It's... Let's see how you become product oriented in your thinking of AI and monitoring is a main tool in doing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing those concrete issue with the traditional approach of research uh, transit, well as well as defining the, the definition of what does it mean to be product oriented AI. Just to recap what you said, just the, the model isn't the endpoint, it's the whole AI uh, animal system, the tested model isn't in the test and it is continuous in production. And finally, I think the goal is to strive to attend the system issue before the business KPI are being impacted. So that's a, the three main bullet points, so we say, of yeah. what does it mean to be product-oriented AI. Now, in the same talk, you actually, towards the end of the talk, you concretely provide the four tactics for teams to become product-oriented. And I would love to go a bit deeper into some of these tactics uh, just to illustrate how, what does it mean for maybe leaders and practitioners who want to make that transition. Just to lay it out right here, to set the context. So number one is having end-to-end accountability for the system. Number two is generating a granular understanding of this behavior. Number three is creating business feedback to to KPIs for over-the-performance. And number four is leveraging production visibility to improve research capabilities. Can you unpack some of these tactics in more deliberate detail,
2: yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll try to be quick about it. So also, we touched a couple of those already. So I'll just mm-hmm. refer to what we previously discussed as well. But so number one, the most important tactic and like the most important thing that you can do if you want to become product oriented is to promote a culture organizationally of, of end-to-end accountability um, of AI, of the AI system. And for the team that's building the AI system, like like they, they need to feel that they're accountable for, for the AI system's behavior in production for how it serves the business. And I'm saying that this is the most important one, because once you have this kind of accountability culturally, then the people will just decide, okay, we're accountable, then we need to find how to make this work because, because that's how we're measured, right? So if you're able to promote this kind of culture, then you're already um, on the right path, right? So. The point in, in this tactic is basically, okay, there's a plethora, there's like a whole lot of different issues that can occur with AI models. We we just saw, we discussed one example with the fraud detection mode, that's like your feature is broken because of a new Google Chrome version, right? And this kind of, of, of problem, really, it's, it's unclear, like I said before, it's unclear kind of who's responsible for this, you've got to have a culture that, um, in which it's, it's obvious who's responsible for this, who's, who's accountable for this. And, and, and they are measured for this, right? And, and to do that, like a couple of things you can do is, first of all, make sure they have the right tools to actually be able to do that, right? And that's where I plug in Mona, right? This is a key tool for you to be, to be able to do, but it's, it's not the only tool, right? Uh, other tools for validation, for like model registries, experiment tracking, you know, obviously, it's, But uh, so that's really like number one, like the main tactic, the main thing that that you need to do is promote this kind of culture, generate this kind of culture. The second thing is uh, what what we discussed already. I think generating a granular understanding of the system's behavior. You, you, you've got to go deep. You can't, you can't just look at your feature distribution across the entire data set, like we saw before, you're going to lose like the moment you see a problem over there, it's already too late. So you got to have a granular understanding. The third one is creating business feedback related KPIs for model performance. So basically what I'm saying here is that you need to zoom out, right, from the model and just the inputs, outputs, and look at the entire process. Sometimes you have many different models in the same process and a failure of one is the cause for the failure of, of another, right? Like one feeds, like an output of one is an input for another, and and you have to Monitor them in the same context so you know that this is happening, When this is happening. Sometimes the problem isn't in the actual model inputs or, or outputs. It's in some third-party data source that's causing the issue. you got to me- monitor what's coming on, coming on from there. You got to create actual business feedback results if, if it's possible. It's not possible always, right? If you're trying to predict life expectancy of people in life insurance policies, right? And that's. Very hard to get actual business results over there. It's like years forward, like know whether or not your prediction was correct. Uh, Same with real estate uh, predictions, but oftentimes there could be at least some kind of proxy that you can get or some cheap or this not very expensive manual labeling that you can integrate into your process to create some kind of business today. So we really zoom out from the model. It's not just about model inputs and outputs. It's about the entire process. And then number four was really what I like to call the, the tactic that that is like the tide that raises all boats. Because you have a research oriented team, let's say right now, their main KPIs are how well am I doing on my test set, right? I want to improve my model. I want to make sure that I'm using the right learning algorithm, that I have the best data, That all, all those things, right? And when you have much better visibility into production, into how your models behave in production, you can actually feed that back in, right? I'm not just talking about like having more labels, right? But feedback that back in to improve your research process, right? So you can learn, okay, here's a specific segment, right? Let's say you have like an audio analysis kind of model you're trying to do, even speech to text, right? And that's, that's a common example. And and let's say you, you can find out when in real production, in inference time, you can find out that there are specific devices when the recording comes from those devices, you're doing work. So maybe there's a specific type of microphone, right? That's that just, gets like specific noise that your, that your model isn't very good working with those recordings. So. The, the being product orient can really help you improve your research as well. It shouldn't come at like, instead of improving research, right? It should definitely improve um, your research as well. And then, and, and this makes it much easier culturally also coming back to number one, to make this shift,
1: right? Yeah. I, th- I think both of the first point, the fourth part is really emphasize that production and research are a loop, like, like a feedback loop, yeah. uh, improvement. And one environment become like the input, the other environment. It's not a division. A sort of kind of you, you should. That's
2: what you should try to create. This kind of feedback loop is definitely mm. what you should try to create.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks for uh, emphasizing and elaborating on those topics. And I'll be sure include talk. The, the links to the talk in the show notes, so listeners can have a chance to uh, learn more about what exactly did we discuss in the call today. Now, let's take off your product hat and put on your co founder hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any holisticist instead of father. What valuable lessons have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about missions and whatnot? Yes. First of
2: all, giving talks like the one in, in Berlin, Deadlift, is, is always helpful. Right? You get a lot of exposure and um, people are interested in what you're doing, then they, they, yeah, they come over. But it's like when you're doing something very, like when it's very early startup, I think personal network is like everything. Like in very early stages, that's like the most important thing. And you need to have friends and friends of friends and brothers and sisters of friends and that are like thinking that are like in this area and that you trust them and you like know that those are like right people to bring on. If you're starting a... like one of the things that I really um, suggest thinking about early on is okay, okay who's going to be like your founding team? Right? I'm not talking just about the co-founder. Okay. First year, like who is listing your fantasies? Like who are you bringing on? Right. You might not get all of them, but that's right. And as things progress, actually like the network of networks is, is still huge, right? Like your founding team, if they're like enthusiastic about what's happening and things are going well, then they, Bringing their friends as well. And it's usually like the best thing that you can have. So almost all of Mona employees, thus far, they came from like such like networks, right? Either our personal networks, the co-founders or the first employees, personal There was maybe a couple who didn't. I think also diversity should be thought of from day one, just mm-hmm. to allow in the future, more people to join later on and feel comfortable if you have I know 10 male engineers team, it's going to be harder to bring the first female engineer than if you have four male engineers and now you're the first one. It's just makes it much more difficult. we're proud to have over 50% female engineers. Wasn't hard at all, actually. It's like from the networks of friends, what came naturally um, for us. And something that worked really well for us is just like hiring junior engineers. Once we already have established the founding team, and we have people who are very knowledgeable in what's happening in our engineering practices, so I'm talking mainly about engineering because that uh, we are a deep tech company. It's like the main thing that we were hmm. like hiring for. It. But we established a very good kind of capability to bring in junior engineers and grow them within the team. And you need to be pay close attention because this can also uh, to I know less convenient situations where if, if you don't have the attention span to help, you, you you must make sure that you have enough senior people who are like attending the office and are resourceful and and are helping the juniors as well. But if you can build that, then it makes things much easier because it's much easier to bring in talented junior engineers than to bring in maybe even less talented but senior engineers that are already. Get paid much more and they are in a different place in their careers and in what they're looking for.
1: Yeah. So, just to recap, leveraging personal network, striving for diversity from day one and hiring junior talent and providing a ladder for them to grow with their organization.
2: Yeah. Make sure you have the ladder before you hire the junior talent. Doc.
1: And j- just on a quick note on that point, given your experience as an engineer in the past and now, uh, leading other engineers, being an engineering team. I'm just curious, what are some of the, the traits that, that attributes exceptional engineering talent?
2: Uh, that's a good question. So for us, like the main thing we look at, there's like a threshold of like how smart you need to be. But over that, like when you're above that, like the main thing that we're looking for is the culture of fit. Right. And like that, so so the main traits that we look for after you pass this kind of threshold is like, are you here, are you coming to um, pull up your sleeves and do the hard work because there is no one in the company at this stage that is just like managing, there's, there's nothing like that. So can, are are you, are you coming enthusiastic to actually work hard and, and, and do those things? Are you generally like a very nice person who's a team player and will help because there's no other way to build this ladder to juniors because we already have today some of the juniors that we hired are today the seniors that are helping the new juniors to um, climb up that ladder and it's impossible to build that ladder. It's like the, the junior to bring in now, that's going to be the next step in the ladder, right? That you are going to have to be like the kind of person that will help. So, so we bring in juniors that we feel will be good leaders and and provide resources to new juniors a year, two years after that. Those are the kind of things that we're looking for. I don't know if, if that's like a, gen, a good general advice for engineers. Okay, that's what you need to work on. That's, that was very important
1: for us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that context. Touching my comment on customers a little bit. So finding early adopters is necessarily charging for the price product, right? And I think you touched on this part earlier In doing the funny story of Mona Labs, where really the early design partners, you said less stage AI-centric companies, what challenges did your team have overcome to find these early design partners and our customers, just in in general, in what context?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, So this actually wasn't very challenging for us, maybe surprisingly. Again, personal networks play a key role over here. So I knew the CEO of one company and my co-founder knew the CTO of another company. And, and another thing that really helps is start building your um, relationship network with VCs, with investors, getting in introductions to companies that the VCs already work with is a very good way for A, to get those design partners and B, to also measure. So it's, you know, you also measure the quality of the VC from this, okay. Who can he help me meet? Or, or he or she, and can, who can they help me meet? And so we got a couple like this as well. And just in general for us, it, it was also easy because Israel is just really like a Mecca for AI. so many AI-centric companies are established here. And even if they're like headquartered in the US, many of them are still like have their engineering. Or product teams uh, here in Israel, and and they're all centered in Tel Aviv, most of them. So it made it very easy to walk around, just meet more people, ask around. Uh, The community is tight knit over here; you can easily ask around. Once, obviously, it's not anyone can do it very easily. You gotta get some rapport and and try to get like introductions, form introductions, and, and build relationships and build friendships. But we were in a good situation to. Do that when we started,
1: and now I suppose Mona probably have more customers. And one point you also mentioned earlier is like just solution tackle different data modalities, ranging from structured data to NLP to computer vision to speech and audio. And I assume like monitoring might have to be customized Mm -hmm. for these different these cases. So, how do as a chief product officer, how do you Think about, satisfying the needs of different customers in different domains.
2: Yeah. So that's, that's where being a product person who's also an engineer really helped because you think of, okay, you have a design partner and you come to a conclusion with that design partner that this is the type of thing they need from the solution, they need X. And then you talk to another design partner and they need Y. And you start breaking down the components. How oh, you can build something that will provide both X and Y, what's shared between X and Y and what does, what isn't shared. And, and therefore, what do you need to, to allow them to configure exactly, to, to, to configure to have X or to have Y and both with the same kind of software and without working too much. It's not an easy thing to do, but you, know, you can check our documentation. If anyone wants to go in different with so their documentation and, and do our tutorial and Just see like how our configuration language works. So we have a no code, low code configuration. You can either do this with zero code, like with a graphical user interface on the dashboard, or with a JSON-based low code kind of configuration file. You can write and manage on your Git repository or wherever, and then programmatically update Mona with it, which just tells Mona how to build your monitoring schema, how to extract the relevant information from the data that flows through your system, and what kind of alerts do you uh, uh, relevant for you, right? What, what do you want to get alerted on? Uh, what type of drifts, what type of changes in the data, what type of beliefs um, or outlier behaviors, et cetera.
1: For sure. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, that context. And so with that, lastly, I want to touch on the broader ecosystem in Israel. When you talk a little bit about the robustness of, of the whole country in, in general, so how would you describe the, the state of the AI, and engineering community in Israel?
2: I think the best word is just like the community here is thriving. It's probably, perhaps it's the best place. I don't know, maybe in the Valley, you will find more companies in number, but, and I'm, I'm, I'm not as familiar over there with the, how the community works, but here there's so many different companies doing so many cool things regarding to ML engineering and ML infrastructure and just, and ML applications as well which is great because you need to find your first customers and you can just do that here in Hebrew. And, and there's lots of thought leadership coming out from here. And the, the community is also very tight knit, right? Like you can easily get connected to different people, almost everyone you meet, you have some common friend that uh, went to the, like they went to the army together and you went to high school with him uh, and then you can just like easily get acquainted like this, also a lot of kind of pride. People are really happy to help one another and happy to make each other look, look really good. And everyone's happy when someone succeeds. It's a really great community. We have all the right WhatsApp groups, all the right Facebook groups. Very easy to just get around.
1: I'm sure. You not? Know, I think, I think like a lot of the companies in the whole ops ecosystem are from Israel, right? And then not just monitoring, but like across different... Across the entire stack. Yeah, so it's interesting to hear your perspective on how it manifests itself in the community. So Yitai, this one conversation. I want to move to the final closing segment, in which I'm to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you need know, to provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader PI and ML engineering community. Okay. So
2: first one I'd say is Goku. Goku Mohandas from Made with ML. Yeah. So day, you just done amazing work. It's such a topic that so many people are interested in and it's so hard to map it out for a beginner and, just, okay, this is how, this is him. I always like it when someone like lays a path for you and he does that. So many different people, so many people are walking down a path that he laid, which is amazing. Vila, Vila Tulos from Outer Bounds. So I interviewed him and we were friendly, I don't know, a year and a half ago. We when he was just starting Outer Bounds. So I just, I really appreciate how just coming from a big company like Google, I really appreciate how hard it is to build. So he he worked at Netflix before and he built within Netflix, he built MetaFlow and it became like probably the basis for Outer, Outer Bounds, but also like a, just a, a super popular tool outside of Netflix. And I just appreciate, I know how hard it is from a big company to try and build something that's going to be. Popular outside of the company. Three people. Okay, then I'll, I'll choose my co founder and TTO, Nemo. I'll choose Nemo uh, for the third one. Because really, uh, like the, the, the thing that he did with regards to automatic corporate detection, like counterfactual checks to find the, the best segment. Think about this, the, the, how difficult how important this problem is. We want to find out the best way to look at what's going wrong with any data that you have, like where is the data performing not so well? And he found a way to show you the best way to look at it with what are all the other things that are just symptoms. They're not the root causes. And and that's I think the most interesting thing that I have watched in, in real time
1: ever being created. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing those profiles. Number two, what is one book? that you recommend for people who want to develop a better engineering mindset.
2: Okay. So for this, I have to be like super honest and say that uh, I'm not a huge book person when it comes to engineering learning. Like to me, to learn how to build something, I just need to have an idea for something that I want to build because I'm excited to have this thing in existence and just make sure that I say, okay, I'm going to build this and then just Start understanding how to do that. Like, so if reading a couple of chapters in the book is part of that path, then that's great. And I'll, I'll try to realize that, but I'll just look for more and more material, material online and like examples and just try to understand how things, um, are going. I'm not super familiar with any like specific book that I can really recommend. So I just recommend like, um, get really enthusiastic about something that you want to build and the learning will come with the process. Th- that's how it works for me. Anyways.
1: But finally, imagine that we send a single message to all the early career, early stage machine engineers on LinkedIn. What could you say? So, I would
2: say if you're a junior machine learning engineer, I would make sure. I think the most important thing that you can do, probably, it varies from in different places, but one of the most important things that you can do is to make sure that you are in a company that advances the kind of product oriented approach that promotes the kind of product-oriented approach that I discussed earlier. Because this is probably the best predictor that you can have for how robust um, the team is and how, how strong it is going to be and is right now within the organization, and whether or not you're going to keep your job if something bad happens to the business, and whether or not you can expect to get promoted and the team to get promoted to have more and more central parts of the business. Because if it's just you're building something that's like this cool research thing that we want to do for, for PR um, reasons, then there's a good chance that you are in an uh, unstable kind of place. And also that you're not going to learn the best practices for how to do things that actually work. So either make sure that you're in an organization by finding this organization or by promoting internally, if that's possible, culturally in the organization that you're in promoting this kind of, of thinking and approach.
1: Yeah, actually, so I think that's a, a fantastic way to uh, conclude our conversation. So Itai, I really enjoy uh, chatting with you today, learning about Same your here. educational background in Jerusalem, your time working as an engineer on Google Trends, technical advice on uh, comprehensive monitoring strategy, high-level architecture of the modern monitoring platform, some of the short work and totally distributed to how to move from a research-oriented to a pro-oriented business team, as well as some of the strategy related to hiring, finding design partners, as well as tapping into the broader community in Israel. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow up, and learn more about some of the exciting work um, that uh, Modern Labs has been working on now in the past, as well as in the future, to push the state of monitoring for more companies to become bias centric, and they're excited to hear that. And yeah, with that, I uh, hope you have a, a good rest of today.
2: Thank you so much, James. This was fun. Thanks so much.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jamescailey.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now